Turn to Ephesians chapter number one. We started the series two weeks ago. Gospel truths lead to gospel living. We're going to be studying verses 15 through 23 today, a message I've titled Spiritual Sight. The Hubble Telescope, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that before, is named after an American astronomer named Edward P. Hubble. The, the telescope is about the size of a large school bus. It weighs 24,500 pounds, which is equivalent to two male elephants. They say that, that the Hubble orbits the Earth at a cruising speed of 17,000 miles an hour. It takes 95 minutes to orbit the Earth one time, and in its 30 years of existence, it's went around the Earth 175,000 times. It has so much power in its telescope that they say that it's able to see a star that is 5 billion light years away. To give you some perspective, one light year is 6 trillion miles. Astronomers have, have used Hubble data to publish more than 13,000 journal articles. And that makes it one of the most productive scientific instruments ever made. I think you'd agree with me that that thing right there is amazing. And what makes it so amazing is that it allows us to see up close what we could never see with our human eye. I'll put it in the language of the Bible. It enlightens us. It illumines. It reveals things in space for us that we could never see otherwise. But did you know that God offers us the same kind of enlightenment? This, the same amount of illumination that he kind of offers us a spiritual telescope of sorts. And all we have to do to access it is what Paul did in Ephesians chapter 1. We have to pray for spiritual sight. And as we do, God will allow us to start seeing some things and grasping some things and understanding some things. Not with our physical eyes, but with our heart eyes. Our spiritual eyes. My mic's off. We're good. And I thought it was Rob saw it the whole time. In the back of my mind, I, I, was, I was formulating the lecture I was going to give you after services. Do I need to repeat everything I just said? Because that's a bummer. That was really good. Anyway, the Hubble telescope's awesome, and God offers us a spiritual one. That is the summary. Now, I'm not talking about anything weird like visions in the night or Jacob's ladder coming down from heaven in your bedroom in the middle of the night. Okay, if, that, if that happens, it's because you drank too much Red Bull and ate too much pizza before you went to bed. When I say that God offers us spiritual sight and he opens our eyes to some things, I'm not talking about some new revelation or new doctrine. We're not praying for anything new. Paul didn't pray for anything new. We're praying for our eyes to be open to truth we already know. Let me explain. If you remember last message, two weeks ago, we, we talked about all the spiritual blessings that we have in the gospel. All the spiritual blessings we have because we're saved. That comes through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Paul used 14 verses to describe that in detail, and it's so rich. But then he stops writing about theology for a moment. He puts down his pen and he starts praying in verse 15. And the essence of his prayer is, God, open the eyes of our heart. And here's why. Because he knows that simply explaining those spiritual blessings that we have in the gospel is not sufficient. 
Because it's not, eno- it's not enough to know the facts of the gospel in your head. You need, you need to, to, to feel their, their reality in your heart. And unless God grants us spiritual sight, we won't see it that deep. I want to show you what, you, what I mean. Look at verse 15 of Ephesians 1. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love and, uh, unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what he prayed. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your understanding, of your heart, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. So, So Paul's praying for spiritual sight. He's praying for the Spirit of God to reveal to our hearts what the Spirit of God has already revealed to our minds. Why? He says so that we may know God. And so that we may know the spiritual blessings we have in Him. Now now pay attention to this. When he uses the word know, when he uses the word knowledge in verse 17, he's using one out of two possible Greek words he could have used. One possibility could have been the Greek word oida. Oida, it refers to knowledge, uh, knowing facts and, and data. In other words, I oida, or I know that Topeka is the capital of Kansas. Did I get that right? I oida, or, or I know, this is going to impress you, that the square root of 256 is 16. Now don't Google that, I know I'm right. I already Googled it. I oida, or I know, this is going to really impress you, that that the tiny piece of hard plastic at the end of your shoelace is called the aglet. That's deep preaching. But here's another word for knowledge in the Greek, and the one that Paul chose to use in verse 17. It's the Greek word ginosko. It refers to a personal felt knowledge gained through experience. Let me show you the difference. You might know, oida, how parachuting works. But that's different than the moment you step out of the plane with the parachute, ginosko. Because my wife was induced, we got to pick the date. December 28, 2010, I knew, oida, that my wife was about to give birth to Kevin Kent. But that was different than holding my son in my arms for the first time. Then I really knew, ginosko. Gnosko is the kind of knowledge that Paul is teaching us to pray for in regards to understanding the gospel and the spiritual blessings we have through it. In other words, he says, God, open the eyes of my heart to fully grasp everything I have in Christ. Give me not just a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge of what the gospel means for me. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the blessing of being chosen and accepted and adopted by the Father, redeemed, forgiven, and given an inheritance by the Son, and sealed and secured by the Spirit. Those first 14 verses. Now, why is it so important for us to have a heart knowledge of those, to feel their reality in in our hearts? Don't miss this. Because the more you understand the gospel and how it's changed your life, the more you will want to live out the the gospel in your daily life. No, I'm telling you, when God grants us spiritual sight, He takes the truth of the gospel that we've understood with our minds and and He makes them burst alive in our heart. And that's the point where we gnosko. We know the truths are real and personal and felt. 
Did you know that most of your spiritual problems are a result of your lack of spiritual sight? Because what you know with your mind is not being felt in your heart. Let me ask you, do you feel dry spiritually? Do you feel cold spiritually? Do you often feel like there could be more to your Christian life than you're experiencing? I know for a fact that many of you have been Christians since you've been very little. You are versed with the facts of the Bible. Oida. But do you feel them anymore like you used to? Does the gospel, does your salvation, does it wow you and captivate you anymore? If not, let me tell you what you need today. You need the truth of the gospel to go from here and to come alive in here. You don't need any more oida. You need ginosko. And in order to make that happen, we need God's help. And so Paul teaches us a prayer to pray. And it involves three things. Number one, God help us see the certainty of our hope. Look at verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Why? That you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, now we use the word hope in the English language a little different than, than they used it in the Greek language. Because in the English language, the word usually refers to something we want to happen. We're not very sure it will happen. For, for, for instance, every year Dallas Cowboys fans hope they can win the Super Bowl. They're, they're just not very sure that'll happen considering the last time they won one was when I was 12 years old. I'm 36 today. Biblical hope, by contrast, is not something you're unsure about. It's something you're very sure about. It just hasn't happened yet. We're talking about something that you look forward to with great anticipation, so much so it reshapes the way you see your entire life. So what is Paul saying that we should be certain of? What can we hope for? He says, the hope of his calling. He wants us to be certain about his calling. Who's calling? God's calling to us in salvation. He's speaking about the time that God chose us. And then he drew us to himself and he accepted us and he adopted us and he sees us as holy and as blameless before him. He redeemed us. He, he has forgiven us and we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. That's, that's what he's talking about. That's what we got to be sure of. And if you're not sure of it, then he says, well, the Holy Spirit seals you and secures you until you get there. You got to be absolutely sure of that. Now, why? Why does our, the eyes of our heart need to be open to the certainty of that hope? Here's why. Because the certainty of that hope reshapes how we see everything. I'll give you two things that, that, that it really affects. It changes the way we look at our pain. It's not that Christians who are saved and in Christ and have all these blessings in the gospel no longer have pain. It's just that if we have hope, we see our pain differently than those who have no hope. Now I want you to imagine this. For some of us, it's, it's just imagination. Imagine you have a rich uncle. You're not quite there. He dies and, and leaves you with a billion dollars. You're definitely not there. But if you can get there, that'd be great. All you have to do for it is go to the bank and sign. That's it. You are so happy. You're so ecstatic. And so you get into your old beat-up car in your driveway. It has 200,000 miles on it. Anyone have one of those? We'll pray for you. 
and you get into that thing, and, and you live on the south side of the town like, like I do, the humble people do, and, and, and you, you, you drive across the tracks, and, and about the time you get to the, to the library, the post office area on Main Street, by the way, you're, you're, you're headed to the, the, uh, the, the um, Golden Plains Credit Union. Farron asked me to put that shameless plug. That's the bank that's giving you a billion dollars. Um, about halfway there, it, it starts clunking, and, and, and then it, it, it blows up, and, and, and you pull over, and, and the, the engine's smoking. And, and on a normal day, the stress and the inconvenience and the irritability would be like at an all-time high. It would be painful. I mean, you have a 200,000-mile vehicle because you can't afford a new one. But on this day, you just close the door, you leave the keys in it. You start whistling Amazing Grace and you just walk north to Golden Plains Credit and you don't even call Linda's taxi. <laughs> One, it's because their van's really dirty, but two, because you just, you can walk. And so you walk. Why? You got a billion dollars waiting for you. A billion dollars can buy you a million cars. Like you don't need that car. It's changed the way you view your pain. Because your hope is certain, my uncle left me a billion dollars. Do you see how understanding the hope of your calling can reshape the way you view your pain and stresses in life? What's your hope? Heaven's your hope. What's your hope? That nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not even the deepest amount of pain or betrayal or disappointment that you go through. That's your hope. And so as children of God, we don't view our pain and our stress as something that's going to thwart God's purpose for our life. We view it as something that's going to propel us forward to be a better witness for Him. Hey, it also changes the way that we we're able to overcome temptation. No, you'll never be able to say no to sin until you're more excited about what you have in Jesus than you are in the temporary enticements offered you by the world. I gotta tell you the story when I first started dating my wife. You know that I saw her in a, in a practice room, she's playing the piano, and, and I fell in love with her instantly. And I began to date her. She was a sophomore, I was a freshman. Like, she was into me and I was into her. I think, I think it's pretty equal. And the only thing I wasn't into as much as she was into is commitment. I struggle with that. I, I, it scared me. And so when she like wanted to put the pedal on the metal, I wanted to pump the brakes. And so in my immaturity, I just stepped back out of the relationship two or three or maybe six or seven times. Well, when she was a senior and I was a junior, one of the in-between times, I saw some dude talking to her, right? Smack dab in the middle of campus. Now, I've seen, you know, guys talk to her. She's pretty. She's talented. She's got a wonderful spirit. So I've seen guys talk to her, but I know when, like, she's connecting and when it's just like a courtesy listen. And, and she was connecting with this guy. And I saw that. I think it was God because I was just on my way to get my, my mail in the mailbox, and I saw it. They were standing by the mailbox. I think it was God's sovereignty. When I saw how deeply she was connecting with him, I called her dad. I said, I want you to know that I've made a few mistakes in the past few months with your daughter, but I'm ready to get serious. Can I marry your daughter? Wasn't too long after that, I put a ring on her finger. 
And that ring has become, at that moment, became her hope. It became her hope that I was now not going to run away from commitment. Now I was committed. And so any time that these other jokers would come and try to flirt with her, all she had to do is look at that ring. And she knew something better was waiting for her. (laughs) She was no longer enamored by the Daniel Blims of the world. Did I just say his name? Did I just say his name? I, I, I put that under the blood a long time ago, but. And, and I want you to see that when you understand what you have in Jesus, you'll be more excited about that than you are the temporary enticements the devil offers you. Yeah, yeah. That's why we should pray. God, help us to see the certainty of our hope. Here's the second thing we should pray. Help us see our worth to God. Look at verse 18. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, most people read over that phrase right there and go to the next one. You know why? Because it sounds like a bunch of religious mumbo jumbo. I want to take a closer look at it, though. First of all, let me ask you this question. Whose inheritance is this? Whose? Not yours. It says his glorious inheritance. Question, is Paul saying that God has an inheritance coming to him? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Question, what does God not already possess? I mean, have you ever had the dilemma of trying to buy something for a rich person? And you wonder, what do I get them that they don't already have? Or if they wanted it, they could buy themselves? Well, what do you get for a God who can speak literally anything he wants into existence and it happens? The answer? You. The one thing God didn't have that he was willing to go to a bloody cross to obtain was you. This, this is a thought, at least to me, that is almost too glorious to comprehend that the God who literally had everything and could wipe the board of creation and start over if he wanted actually set his love on me and was willing to submit to the pain and the humiliation of the cross just so that he could be with me for all eternity. Hey, this is how much God loves you. This is how much you're worth to God. Now let that sink in for a moment. See, we need God to help us what that... Help us to understand and see how how weighty, how significant that is. How much you're worth to God. You know why? Because when you know how much you're worth to God, it'll affect the way you live for Him. In our church, we we have a bus ministry. It's it's not running right now. It'll soon be running. And we pick up bus kids 75 to 125 every Sunday. We bring them in and we love on them and we teach them. And not every kid that comes in on the bus comes from a broken home. They don't. Some of them come from from homes with mom and dads that love them and provide for them and care for them. They just choose not to come to church with them. But but there are others who come, a good number of others who come, and you can tell they're not loved. You can tell from where you pick them up. You can tell from the fact they had to dress themselves. You can tell from the fact that they didn't get fed. You know how you can really tell? By the way they behave. 
And sometimes I've, I've seen that, that sometimes kids that aren't loved can, can act out just so they can get attention, even if it's negative attention. And, and here's the point. When a child feels like he's worth something, it shows up in how he lives. And the same is true in your Christian life. Hear me, please. When you realize how much you're worth to Christ, you don't have to search for meaning and worth in people or in possessions or in hobbies or in money or in style or in economic status or in social status or in marital status or in success. Hey, when you realize that God thought enough of you to sacrifice his only begotten son so that he might make you his inheritance, when you really grasp that, when you see it with your heart eyes, it will transform the way you live your life for him. It'll transform how you act. It'll transform how you talk. It'll transform how you carry yourself. We need need Him to help us see the certainty of our hope. See our worth to Him because there are a lot of people that come to church that don't feel like they're worth anything. Oh, if you're a child of God, you are worth so much to Him. And then we need to pray one more. Help us see God's power at work in us. These next set of verses are amazing. You've got to look at them in your Bible. Verse 19 through 23. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he, was, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him the head over all things to the church, which is his body and the fullness of him that filleth all in all. God, help us to see God's power at work in us. Now listen, if I were the Apostle Paul and I wasn't being inspired by the Spirit and I was writing to my own intellect, I think that if I was trying to tell somebody about the power of God, I would have picked creation. I I mean, think about creating something out of nothing. It it doesn't seem like you can get more powerful than that. When you consider that with a word, God created 3,000 billion trillion stars, each one putting out the same energy as a trillion megaton atom bombs every second. Like he spoke that in existence. And it happened. But Paul says there's even greater power than it, that's at work in us than creation power. It's resurrection power. This means, watch, that the resurrection of Christ, not the creation of the world, is our reference point to see and understand what type of power is working in and through us when we get saved. Yes, creation can bring life out of nothing, but resurrection brings life back from the dead. And Paul The Apostle Paul said that the resurrection of power that that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is actually available to us who believe. Okay, then why do we have to pray to grasp that? We know that with our mind, but why do we have to pray for God to help us see that with our heart? Here's why. Because we're going to study in a few weeks Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, and Ephesians 6. And all of those three chapters are about this topic. This is how you should live your life. Paul is going to teach us the high expectations that God places on his children who have been bought, redeemed, forgiven, accepted, and adopted by him. We are going to understand in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 that God expects us to live with meekness and lowliness, with long suffering and forbearance towards others, especially those who are difficult. We're going to learn that he wants us to forgive and not hold a grudge, to live without anger toward others, 
to have no corrupt communication come out of our mouth. He is going to mention things like this and forbid them in our life. Fornication, covetousness, idolatry, and lying. He's going to expect us who are saved to have a good marriage. He's going to expect us who are saved to be good parents. He's going to expect those kids who are saved to be good children and respect and honor their parents. He's going to expect those who are saved to conduct themselves appropriately in the workplace. He's going to expect us to stand up against the wiles of the devil and to fight off his attacks. Now that is a gigantic list of expectations. That seems impossible to live up to. That's why you need to understand that what God has expected, he has empowered What he calls you to do, he will enable you to do. In fact, listen to this church. The same power that he used to resurrect Jesus from the dead, to elevate Jesus to the right hand of the throne of God, to render Jesus successful against the devil and all his demons, and to make Jesus the head of the church, that same power is working in you. And when you understand that, it changes the way you see the Christian life. Because when you try to live up to God's expectations of you, you will utterly fail every time or you will be discouraged when you do it. You will run out and then you'll burn out. But when you truly understand that you're living the gospel life from an overflow of gospel thankfulness and his resurrection power, you will serve him with joy. You will forgive others willingly. You will be less angry. You will be a better spouse. You'll be a better parent. You'll be a better child. You'll be a better employee. You will stand firmly against the devil because you believe that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Hey, that's resurrection power. Well, we, I don't want you just to understand it with your mind today. I want you to understand it with your heart when you go to work on Monday. And when you got to put up with a boss that is not very good, but yet, yet Paul says that you submit And Paul says, you show lowliness of mind and long-suffering. I want you to remember, if God expects that of you, he's empowered you to do it. Hey, I want you to feel the reality of this in your heart when you come to church and you see that person at church that wronged you and that offended you. Whether it's the guy right here speaking or the person around you today. And God tells you to forbear with them and not be angry with them and not hold a grudge with them and not to make them feel the way they made you feel. You can't do that in your own strength, friend. You hold on to grudges in your own strength. You need to know that the resurrection power is working in you to help you forgive things that you think are unforgivable. I want those of you who are coming to church, and then you're going to go home tonight, and your marriage is pretended to be one way in this building, but it's another thing at home. And you think in your mind as a spouse, how, how can I love them when they do this? When they treat me this way? I want you to feel the reality of the resurrection power in your heart at that point. Because saying amen out loud and, and knowing it in your head, oida, is not enough to let you and allow you and empower you to live out the gospel. You need gnosko. You need to feel these realities in your heart. And you can't unless you pray, God, help me see it. Yeah. What a prayer. Challenge you to put it on your daily prayer list. God, open the eyes of my heart to see the certainty of my hope, to see my worth to you and to see your power at work in me. Closing statement. When we see the gospel clearly, We will live out the gospel daily.
Why is my spiritual life cold? Why is it dry? Why am I not wowed or captivated or moved anymore? Because your heart eyes are closed. You are spiritually blind. How do you see the gospel in your life? Do you grasp the reality that the Father chose you, accepted you, and adopted you? Do you grasp the reality that the Son has forgiven you and redeemed you? Do you grasp the reality that the Spirit of God has sealed you and secured you? Do you really grasp that on Monday morning? If you do, it'll change the way you live your life. And so the invitation this morning is very simple. If you're a believer, I want to invite you to the altar in a moment to pray for spiritual sight. Why wait to pray this prayer? Let's pray it today. It's simple. God, help me to see that I may live. That's the prayer. Help me to see that I may live. What about those that have never been changed by the gospel? You can't identify with the blessings of being in Christ. What I mean by that is there's never been a time. You can't go back to a place. You can't go back to a place where you were when you placed your faith in Jesus. Not when you asked him to bail you out of something. But when you placed your faith in Jesus, you made him the Lord of your life. You can't go back to a place. You don't have to know what you said completely. You don't have to remember how you felt completely. You don't have to remember the date on the calendar completely. But you've got to have a story attached to that time. I could bring up member after member after member of Fellowship Baptist Church. And I could put up this mic like this. And I could, I could say this. Tell me where you were when you got saved. And I'm telling you, there would be hundreds in this room that could tell us where they were. If you can't tell me where you were when you made that choice... Listen closely. You need to be saved today. And the gospel is available to you. You can't get your, the eyes of your heart open to what the gospel has done in your life if they've never been open to your own lost condition. You get saved first. How do we do that? Well, we've got altar workers, ladies and men that will be up here. We're not trying to embarrass you. We won't call out your name. We won't force you to do anything. But you have to come. You have to make the move. You walk to the front. You meet me. I'll pair you up with somebody. They'll take you into a room all by yourself. And they'll explain to you how you can know for sure. And hear me closely. It's the most important decision you will make today. To accept God or reject Him will be the most important decision you make today. And so if you're about to make the most important decision in fact, that you will make, not just make today, but you'll make in your lifetime, I would take it seriously. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed?